Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. All eyes are on the Senate as it launches its climate bill, with a focus squarely on the economy and clean energy jobs. We clearly want to make sure that consumers are kept whole, and we believe if we do this bill, there's going to be a whole new platform for economic growth in this country. We catch up with the bill's sponsors to find out their game plan. Meanwhile, climate scientists warn the time for action is running out. Also, a day out with a waterkeeper. The sound of the water is very relaxing. At times when I'm stressed out, I'll just stop and I'll listen to the water. I, I like it. I enjoy my job. The man who delivers precious water to California's farm fields. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. It was a big week for climate change in Washington, with both the U.S. Senate and the Obama administration taking the initial steps towards controlling greenhouse gas emissions. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced it will begin regulating CO2 coming from major sources, such as power plants. The announcement came on the very day that Senate leaders unveiled a highly anticipated climate change bill. That bill from Democrats John Kerry of Massachusetts and Barbara Boxer of California could transform energy policy for the U.S. and greatly influence international agreement on global warming. Senators Kerry and Boxer launched their ambitious effort with a campaign-style rally on the Capitol lawn. There were no polar bear costumes or planet Earth placards. Instead, a giant American flag for a backdrop, signs promising new jobs, and military veterans on stage with Senator Kerry. We are here and we introduce this legislation because of one word, security. Economic security, energy security, national security. It is time to reinvent the way that America uses energy. The Democrats' new theme on climate change is clean energy can enhance American power. Republicans weren't buying it. Here's Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander. These are fancy, complicated words for high-cost energy that will send jobs overseas looking for cheap energy. Regardless of party, senators from states that depend most on coal, oil, and heavy industry are nervous about the cost of shifting from fossil fuels. Kerry and Boxer propose a cap-and-trade system, as did a similar bill narrowly passed by the House in June. The senators set a more aggressive target for reducing emissions, a 20 percent cut by 2020. And they say that can come without sharp cost increases. I spoke with Senator Boxer as she huddled with staffers in her office. She explained a new proposal in the bill called a price collar. The goal is to ensure that the cost of emitting CO2 doesn't go too high or too low. We don't want to have a price spike that makes this very, very difficult. So as you well know, the House bill had an $11 floor on the price of carbon. And we said at $28, we're going to unleash 
the reserve of allowances that we have, which will act as a mechanism to keep that price at $28. So we call this a soft collar, and we think it will take away the argument that this is going to somehow start a huge spike in energy costs. It's, it's, it's a new proposal that really was taken from the best of all of the cost containment proposals we looked at. What else might you have to do to uh, meet the concerns that have been raised by your fellow Democrats from uh, Midwestern manufacturing states? We're working very closely with all our colleagues. Some think the bill's too weak. Some think the bill's too strong. Some think the bill's just right. You know, you're too... So we clearly want to make sure that consumers are kept whole. And we believe if we do this bill, there's going to be a whole new platform for economic growth in this country. America will be the leader. It will lead to more jobs, not fewer jobs. As Senator Boxer leads the bill through her Environment Committee, she must also keep in mind fellow Democrats like Ohio's Sherrod Brown. Senator Brown says Boxer's bill should include a so-called carbon tariff. He doesn't want countries like China to win out if we cut emissions and they don't. If they're not following any kind of strong environmental rules like we are, then they should pay a tariff at the border, an equalization adjustment, if you will, that that reflects that cost of environmental cost of production. Otherwise, the jobs tend to migrate to those countries with the weakest environmental rules. The House bill included a carbon tariff, and that's been highly controversial. It might violate World Trade Organization rules. Chinese officials warned of a trade war, and that could throw a wrench into international climate talks coming in December in Copenhagen. I caught up with Senator Kerry in the Senate halls. Kerry chairs the Foreign Relations Committee and has an eye on the progress toward an international agreement. He told me he thinks some sort of carbon tariff is appropriate if done correctly. Uh, It is absurd to have a country think it can just go outside of an environmental international agreement and take advantage of selling products that are high carbon content, and we should not allow that. Does that complicate getting an agreement with the Chinese, though? Well, we're making progress with the Chinese. I mean, uh, you know, the China, you know, Hu Jintao stood up at the UN and talked about uh, percentage reductions. The president's going to China in uh, November. So we, did, we just have to now negotiate through sort of how do you measure, how do you verify. I think that's achievable, personally. And one thing that will really help it be achievable, I know this from our conversations, is our moving here. If we do this, you stand a better chance of getting the Chinese to be more declarative. And if you don't pass this? Well, I think if this, you know, if it actually failed... Uh, I think that would be very injurious to the Copenhagen process. I think uh, it would be very injurious to our foreign policy because a lot of countries held against us our walk away from uh, Kyoto. And uh, if we were to walk away from this, I think it would be very damaging to President Obama's foreign policy. There's more from Senators Kerry and Boxer at our website, LOE.org. And Steve, Senator Kerry says he doesn't think the Senate has to complete this bill before the Copenhagen gathering. He says so long as there's good progress, let's say having it approved by the important committees in the Senate, well, then that should send a strong enough signal to the other world leaders. And Jeff, to add urgency in this critical time before Copenhagen, the British government scientists have just released some new research. And it shows that unless we slash emissions, we could face climate disaster sooner than previously thought, perhaps within 50 years. Dr. Richard Betts is head of the Climate Impacts Group at the UK Meteorological Office, which has perhaps the best record in global warming modeling. 
Dr. Betts, now it looks like your report says that world temperatures could shoot up some 4 degrees Celsius. That's about uh, 7 uh, or so degrees Fahrenheit. Am I reading your graphs correctly? Yes, that's what we say in, in our report. Our, our best estimate, taking account all the different models that we have available, would be that we could reach four degrees warming by the 2070s if we continue burning fossil fuels at a high rate. It's important to stress that we could still avoid that if we cut fossil fuel emissions, say if we don't burn so much coal and oil. But the uncertainties are huge when you're trying to look so far ahead in such a complex thing as the world's climate. And the absolute worst case scenario does seem to be reaching four degrees global warming by 2060. We're talking about a four degree rise or even a two degree rise. It doesn't sound like much. Why should people be concerned about this? A four-degree rise globally would actually mean a greater rise in many regions, up to 10 degrees in some land regions. So many countries could see a 10-degree rise. The Arctic Ocean could see perhaps a 15-degree rise, and we could see more droughts on the one hand, more floods on the other hand, and implications for food security and human health. So a very different world, uh, which we may find very difficult to live in. Now, as I understand it, rainfall, you project, could uh, decrease by as much as 20% in certain areas, but it could also go up by as much as 20% in other areas. Which areas are you talking about and why such a wide variation? So in places such as Eastern Africa or India or parts of Southern Asia, we could actually see an increase in rainfall of 20% or more. Uh, it all depends on the uh, the way the global wind patterns change in response to a warming world. So that's why you get some areas with increased rainfall, some areas with decreased rainfall. Folks in the Philippines recently saw quite a bit of rain. Are we likely to see more of this in the future? Is that what you're saying? We are, uh, and that uh, is because on the whole we expect intense rainfall events to become more intense. The warming of the land surface or the ocean surface tends to drive greater thunderstorm activity, for example, uh, which would then mean more intense rainfall. Uh, So a warmer world, on the whole, means more intense rainfall events. Well, let's turn now to the chief climate negotiator for the Philippines. He's Senator Hirsan Alvarez, and he's at the UN Climate Talks in Bangkok right now. Uh, Senator Alvarez, we're sorry for the tragedy of this typhoon season that's been so tough for your land and people. Many of our people are demoralized because a great part of the island have been, since time immemorial, as far as they remember, visited by typhoons. But these were gentle typhoons. They blow off the rooftops, but population survive. But this time they have become very destructive because they bring in massive volume of flood water. What would a warmer world mean for the Philippines? 60% of our um, best cities our infrastructure, our industries uh, will be under salt water. We may be forced to live on top of mountains. It's a blessing in disguise that we're here in conference uh, when this hit the country. So the suffering and the ruin, the pain of people and children who perished uh, may not have been in vain because of this. If people all over the world will to understand destruction is not an accident of nature, I know that humanity will rise. I don't see any reason why we cannot mobilize population to be able to moderate and avert ultimately this destructive force. Senator Hirsan Alvarez is the chief climate negotiator for the Philippines. And uh, now turning back to Richard Betts of the UK Met Office. Uh, So in these climate negotiations, the Europeans are pushing for cuts in emissions to, what, 30 percent below 2005 levels. And China is hinting that perhaps they could level off their emissions by the year 2030. If that's the deal, could it avert the scenario that you've laid out? 
if we can peak emissions, say, by the 2030s and then have a decline afterwards, then that still leaves us with a chance of avoiding a four-degree warming. Obviously, a lot of people are also more concerned with avoiding a two-degree warming, which, again, we know would have significant impacts. So to avoid a two-degree warming, we need to have a peak in emissions and cutting emissions after that in the next 10 years. So what do you tell your grandchildren? Well, I don't have grandchildren myself yet, but uh, I tell my children that the world could be very different. In fact, the world already is going to be different because we are already committed to some level of climate change, uh, whatever we do. So what do you ask your children to do in light of this? Do they have to take shorter showers? Do they have to walk more, turn down the heat, anything like that? I encourage them to look beyond just individual things like that. I mean, the things you mentioned are are all appropriate measures in themselves, but also you need to see the bigger picture and be aware everything you do has some uh, effect through your use of energy in all its forms, whether it's where you get your food from, what form of transport you'll take, how much stuff you buy in the shops. Everything you buy needs to be made, and that requires energy. Are we using the land in the most efficient way, especially with the growing population? So thinking about your impact on the world in every part of your life is an an important thing to do these days. Richard Betts uh, directs the Climate Impacts section of the Met Office of the Hadley Centre in the UK. Thank you so much, Dr. Betts. Cheers. Thank you. Coming up, using the courts to cut CO2. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. The second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has opened the door for states and even private citizens to sue coal-fired power plants and other major emitters of global warming gases. The decision, which is predicated on the grounds that greenhouse gases may be a public nuisance, came in a case called the State of Connecticut versus American Electric Power. Patrick Parento is a professor at Vermont Law School. Professor Parento told us the ruling could prove to have a major impact. The remarkable thing is the the Second Circuit said this is just another tort-type case. It's a big one, of course, and it's loaded with complicated science questions and cause and effect questions, but at bottom, it is a tort case. And uh, quickly, for those of us who didn't get to go to law school, what's the shorthand definition of tort? A uh, tort is uh, civil wrong. It's the kind of thing where someone runs a stop sign and runs into your car. That That's an everyday occurrence in courts all across the country. Medical malpractice, of course, very controversial these days in light of health care, is a large area of tort law. So in the wake of this decision, who now then has the right to bring a lawsuit uh, against a company emitting greenhouse gases? Yes, the court ruled that not only do states have the right to bring these actions, but most interesting, private parties and specifically land trusts that own, for example, property in the coastal zone threatened by sea level rise, they too have standing to bring public nuisance actions. And that's quite remarkable. Now, what impact will this decision have on, say, the case of the Alaskan village of Kivalina, who who filed suit last year against the power companies for greenhouse gas emissions? What will they be able to do in, in light of this ruling? That's going to have a significant effect. The Second Circuit is a very well-regarded court of appeal. It's It's probably... If you were thinking of ranking, it's probably ranks third of all the courts in the land, with the Supreme Court being first and the D.C. Circuit being second. So it's going to have an impact 
on the the Kivalina case, which is pending in the district court in Northern California, uh, to determine whether or not the damage that's being done to the village of Kivalina, which of course is literally uh, the the island it's on, is disintegrating into the into the Arctic Sea and is going to have to be relocated. And so this decision opens the door, I think, for the Kivalina case to proceed to trial. So at the end of the day, what are the political effects of this ruling? I mean, right now we have Congress uh, moving towards the climate uh, legislation. There was an earlier Supreme Court decision that allowed the EPA to consider carbon dioxide, the global warming gas, as a pollutant um, and therefore could move towards uh, cars and trucks that that emit uh, uh, CO2. What are the political effects of this ruling? I think the political effects may be some of the most important ones. The court was very careful to say unless and until either the Environmental Protection Agency adopts specific regulations to control greenhouse gases or Congress acts to enact a comprehensive climate change bill, the courts are open to hear these cases and perhaps at some point actually hand down a verdict against some of these industrial sources. So it's interesting. It's another indication of the judicial branch putting pressure, in effect, on the other branches of government. You say that this is a catalyst for the other branches of government. What would happen if the courts uh, continued to be involved in uh, these global warming gas cases and, say, Congress and the executive didn't do anything? Well, in the Connecticut case, the Second Circuit case, the states are seeking a remedy that would, in effect, be a cap uh, of on the emissions of the specific power plants that they've, they've sued, the largest one being the American Electric Power uh, Company, which is the largest utility in the country with the most number of coal-fired power plants. So what the, this decision is saying is if the states are able to establish liability after a trial. In other words, if they're able to connect the emissions from these sources to impacts in Connecticut and other states, then the courts are going to order the utilities to start limiting the amount of emissions. And uh, that kind of remedy scares the industry uh, greatly. They, uh, In fact, the one of the other effects of this decision is going to be impacts on their stockholders and their financial institutions that support them, because this now opens the door to liability, and they'll have to report that risk of liability to the Securities and Exchange Commission and other institutions. So it it has a lot of different ripple effects. And as the industries react to the potential for liability, I would anticipate the pressure on Congress to act and protect the industries from this kind of liability will also increase. Some people are comparing these greenhouse gas court cases to the tobacco litigation. How fair a comparison is that? Well, in the Kivalina case, one of the claims made is that the defendant uh, companies, and that includes utilities and coal companies, conspired to mislead the public and and the legislative branch on the dangers of climate change, uh, which means that they could put the uh, oil and coal companies under oath the same way the tobacco companies were put under oath in the tobacco cases, and they'd have to answer questions about, did you, in fact, fund uh, studies that claimed that climate change was not real, and did you put out uh, public announcements and 
and, uh, in effect, propaganda that was uh, you knew to be false or at least misleading. And when the plaintiffs in these cases are able to prove a conspiracy, the courts are much more likely to uh, assign liability to those corporations as a consequence of these overt acts of uh, misleading the public. Will we have to put warning labels uh, on the products that they sell? <laughs> well, we, we aren't at that point yet. Patrick Parento directs the Environment and Natural Resources Law Clinic at the Vermont Law School. Thank you so much, Professor Parento. My pleasure, Steve. California's second longest river, the San Joaquin, once flowed from the Sierra Nevada through the fertile Central Valley to San Francisco Bay. But for the past 40 years, dams and diversions for farming caused long stretches to run dry. Now, new public lands legislation brought a small gush of water from the Friant Dam to the cheers of environmentalists. Monty Schmidt of the Natural Resources Defense Council believes this will help the people and ecology of the San Joaquin Valley especially the Chinook salmon. Currently, over 60 miles of that river dry up. So in the future, in the very near future, we will have flows year-round, always connecting the river all the way to the sea. This is the second year that the commercial salmon fishery has been closed down. And while there's a lot of reasons why the populations have been crashing, restoring the San Joaquin River is truly one of the best and most important things that can be done in the near term to help restore that fishery and to bring the commercial salmon industry back to health. The river may be only a tiny trickle of water as of yet, but the legislation is making big waves in the agricultural community. Cole Upton says that farmers like him are used to adversity, but the loss of irrigation is a steep price for a project that, given the threats from widespread sewage pollution and a warming climate, may not even save the salmon. What we're looking at in in our area probably 15 to 20 percent of the land will just go out of business in order to balance uh, the water that we have with what we're going to get. The the politicians and the government agencies say, well, we just need more and more water from the valley to clean up the delta. They can take every drop from us here in the Central Valley. It's not going to clean up that delta until they address the other issues that are causing the decline in the species. I mean, I applaud the effort. Right now, I'm just afraid we're going to spend a lot of money and run a lot of people out of business and fail in the process. When irrigation water eventually does reach the agricultural areas of America's West, it still needs to be channeled into farmers' fields. And that's the task of a zanjero, a person who controls the irrigation canals to bring the vital water to croplands. In Southern California, man-made rivers carry the water all the way from the snowmelt-filled Colorado River to the hottest, windiest fields of the Imperial Valley Desert. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet drove with one zanjero along the concrete channels as he sprang in and out of his truck, opening and closing gates, fulfilling farmers' daily orders for water. My name is Jose Romo, and I'm a zanjero. Zanjero's ditch tender. It depends on what part of the country you're from. But everybody has a San Harrow. Anywhere you run water, there's somebody that actually has to control it because the water doesn't deliver itself. 
I love the work. Um, tradition, yes. There is a lot of tradition to it. When they first started, I mean, they were used to do it off horseback. You rarely ever see a farmer, the owner himself, out here. You're dealing with the employees, the foremans, the irrigators, the tractor drivers. Yeah, I gotta make a delivery right here. Okay. They're going to be watering uh, germination broccoli with a pump. They're priming it right now. They're starting to prime the pump. What the whole purpose of our uh, our job is is to make sure that the water comes down here, that he can water confidently for a 24-hour period, a 12-hour period, whatever he needs in order to get that crop germination going. It's crucial since we're doing broccoli seedlings. If the water comes up just one day late, these seedlings would wither. Fortunately, we're never short of water, and today we're running at full bore. We want to hit that, that window when they plant their crop and harvest that crop when there's not that much of that particular crop being offered. If they hit that window, they can make a lot more money than, let's just say, if everybody's crop matures at the same point. Well, here in the Imperial Valley, I mean, it varies, but it can get up to 117, 118 at times, uh, and it's intense heat on the average in the winters, maybe in the 70s. Occasionally you'll go down to freezing at night, but that's kind of rare now. Now it's just the winters are not as severe. You deal with a lot of issues out here. They'll take the diesel fuel that powers the motor. That's been stolen before. They'll take the anhydrous ammonia that you use to uh, fertilize your uh, crops. They'll use that for manufacturing of crystal. There's a lot of things going on here. Just in my area alone, I found four or five labs, and you, the residue anyway, what you're, what you're left with. First time I ran into a lab, I didn't know what I was dealing with. But then you start putting things together. You're talking about ether, you're talking about batteries, you're talking about different types of acid, and then they come out here, isolated area, there's really nobody around, they manufacture a batch, then they dump the residue right there wherever it's at. I have found so many different things in these canals, they would just amaze you. I have found washing machines, dryers, bowling balls, briefcases, vehicles, coarse animals. I found a 20-foot old wooden boat that somebody threw in the canal because he didn't want to take it to the dump. Every day, is, is you just don't know what you're going to find. What we're starting to find, or what we have found recently within the last five years, are backpacks that illegal aliens either drop or lose. 
And, and then you find all their clothes, everything that basically they had on their back. I'm going to turn this pond loose. I'm going to use this water down below for another order for today. This guy was finished. And he let me know so I can take it now. He got started at 9 o'clock yesterday and he's finishing up about 8. So basically only ran 23 hours. But he's done with his water. metal, hard rock, I like country western, I like uh, old style, uh, what you call ranchera music in Spanish stations, you know, here's here's the one out of Mexicali, they play the old rock, that's the heavy rock out of Palm Springs, that's 97.7, that's the KPBS, that's my country western out of Yuma, and that's another radio station out of here. When I was hired, the majority of the people were from Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, and very few Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, worked at San Jose. Racism? To a certain extent, yes. The Imperial Valley, you have to remember, is farming. It's close to the border. I mean, it's it's not it's not. Hey, you know, you screwed me up. It's you dumb Mexican, you screwed me up. Um, it, it doesn't happen as often because you're dealing with a different generation nowadays. But it still exists. There used to be a lot of Japanese down here. I didn't hear that from most of the history books, but. My dad told me there was a lot of Japanese that had a lot of ground, a lot of orchard, a lot of orchards, and when they got interned in these internment camps, their ground was taken away and sold. But the valley has has got a big makeup of a lot of different people. The district still has plenty of water right now, but down the road, I think we are going to see situations like in L.A., where you're going to be limited to the amount of water you can apply to your fields. Uh, it just hasn't reached start that level yet here in the Imperial Valley. But it, it's around the corner. The sound of the water is very relaxing. At times when I'm stressed out, I'll just stop and I'll listen to the water. It's a different, different sound levels, different pitches. I, I like it. I enjoy my job. Jose Romo has delivered water to farmers in California's Imperial Irrigation District for 34 years. His profile was produced by Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet.
just ahead, a bird brain who is also a genius. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Just ahead, just why do birds of a feather flock together? But first, this note on emerging science from Quincy Campbell. New research about slime mold brings the realm of science fiction closer to science fact. Scientists at the University of West England in the United Kingdom are developing a robot made of slime mold. In other words, these organisms are being programmed to move about. The robot's name is Plasmobot, which refers to the plasmodium of the slime mold, the spreading web-like structure made of many unicellular creatures that move around as one. Slime molds are already known for their ability to seek out nutrients and move around obstacles, as well as transport objects. Now scientists are hooking the slime mold's super-sensory smarts up to a computer. Just like other robots, the Plasmobot will be able to solve sophisticated tasks, like finding the shortest distance around an obstacle. This globular, fully biological robot challenges conventional notions about computers. But it might also revolutionize medicine. Researchers say we may one day use nanoversions of the Plasmobot to perform treatments in the human body, such as targeted drug delivery. Their work blurs the line between artificial and biological intelligence at the frontier of science where no man has gone before. Resistance is futile. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Quincy Campbell. Some 46 million people in this country say they are bird watchers, but not many watch birds quite the way Richard Prom does. Prom's an ornithologist at Yale who looks closely, microscopically closely, at birds' feathers. And that's revealed profound insight into just how birds got their amazing variety of colors. Dr. Prom's work was recognized last month by the MacArthur Foundation. He received one of their prestigious awards, sometimes called the MacArthur Genius Grants. Dr. Prom, why feathers? Well, I have been a lifelong bird watcher and bird nut, frankly. And through teaching ornithology over the years, I became increasingly interested in feathers themselves. Uh, first, I just thought this is a fundamental aspect of avian biology that I ought to know about. And I found that there was a surprisingly literal uh, modern literature on feathers and that there were great research opportunities, great unanswered questions. That is what really led me into the sort of uh, feather mania stage of my career. And specifically, you're studying feather colors, right? We have studied just about everything about feathers that we can that we can fit into time. In particular, we've been studying structural colors, which are colors that are made by interaction of light with the material of the feather itself. 
These include blue jays and bluebirds or hummingbirds. And these are colors that, uh, like the uh, sort of anti-fraud holograms on your credit cards, are a result of light bouncing off of a material object, in this case, air bubbles or pigment granules in the feathers themselves. And actually, there's uh, some interest in technologies and in trying to develop new technologies that work the way bird feathers do. And, you know, here we are just on the verge of tapping into nanoscale technology. Birds have been using it for a long time. Yeah, and that's what's uh, fascinating, that there is a lot of interest in the field of engineering and technology to look at biomimetic materials, biomimetic uh, solutions to physical problems. Interestingly, birds, through their desire or needs to communicate with one another, have evolved all sorts of nanoscale solutions to do so. And exploring them may give a guide to how uh, technologies can be developed. Of course, my interest is basically with the birds. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I, although I'm fascinated by the technology development possibilities, for me, this is all an, an excuse to know more about birds how they work, and the lives of birds. Birds have beautifully rich color vision, much richer than ours, uh, much more complicated. And they see in four colors rather than just the three that we know. So we have uh, red, green, and blue, but birds have red, green, blue, and ultraviolet, or violet, another uh, short wavelength color detector in the eye. Wow. So as vivid and striking as birds are to our eyes, it's, it's even more so through a bird's eyes. Correct. What that means is that birds have an additional dimension to their color vision. So birds have these colors like ultraviolet plus yellow, uh, which is a strange form of purple that we can't even imagine, right? And they can see these, they use them in their communication. So their, their color world and their color experience is much richer than ours. You've been looking into some very old fossils, 47 million year old fossil, I read, that uh, actually had some colored feathers on it. Last year, we discovered that uh, these little oblong, tiny, tiny structures that uh, people had thought were bacteria in fossil feathers uh, turned out to be melanosomes or melanin granules. So people hypothesized that these structures were the bacteria that ate the feather when it was being uh, deposited or fossilized. But in fact, it turns out that they were the sort of cellular organelles that include melanin pigments. So they were direct fossil evidence of the melanin that was in the feather uh, in, the, in the living bird. So you know what color that thing was? We are beginning to reconstruct that. The first cases, of course, we're finding when there's lots of melanin, we're finding that the feathers look blackish or would likely have been to be dark black. But in the case of this recent discovery, we found uh, a feather that was likely producing a structural color, uh, sort of like a starling or a grackle, where the bird itself is dark blackish but has a oily or metallic sheen on its, uh, on its plumage, uh, either copper-colored or greenish or deep blue. So if you continue working backwards that way, is it possible to learn more about what color dinosaurs might have been? Exactly, and we're eagerly pursuing that topic right now. You realize you're going to have to, to you know, redraw, reprint every kid's uh, dinosaur coloring book that ever came out. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I've been on this line for a while. Uh, back in, oh, I think it was about 1999 or 2000, uh, when I went to a meeting and saw the f some of the feathered dinosaur fossils from China for the first time, uh, I came back and I lined my kids up on the couch and I said, guys, I want you to remember something. I want you to know that T-Rex had feathers. 
And they said, no, no, Dad, no, 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 Dad, T-Rex doesn't have feathers. I said, no, it does. And, and the reason why we think T-Rex had feathers is because the phylogenetic or, or the tree of, uh, of relationships indicates that Tyrannosaurus rex was inside of a group that we know now from fossil evidence uh, had feathers. We'll have to redraw and reconceive of lots of aspects of dinosaur biology once we uh, uh, make additional discoveries like these. Putting some uh, skin, some flesh, and in some cases some feathers on those bones we're all familiar with in museums. I'm certainly counting on the fact that someday you will download or buy or purchase a a special deluxe edition of Jurassic Park where you can (laughs) toggle through the menus and you can request that the appropriate skin coverings be placed on each of those organisms. And uh, and you can see those things re-rendered as they're supposed to be based on modern science. So what are you going to do now, now that you, you have uh, this uh, prestigious award from the MacArthur Foundation, plus uh, doesn't hurt getting uh, half a million bucks, I guess, uh, what now? In particular, I'm interested in aesthetics, the connection between sexual selection as it occurs in birds and bird plumage and bird song, and the arts generally, or what we understand of, uh, as the arts. So that's, that's pretty out there, and that's a, that's a, new, a new topic that I'm uh, working on right now. Hmm. Now, wait a minute. You're talking, you're talking about why we find something attractive or beautiful. Yeah, I'm talking about the the commonalities between the process of the evolution of ornament in nature and the similar sort of aesthetic process that we see in human arts and uh, whether or not those processes are a lot more similar than we realize. Well, if you're going to do that, that requires working pretty far outside the bounds of what most people would consider standard ornithology. But you're already doing a lot of that. You're not afraid to team up with people from all sorts of fields of study. Over the years, I've become pretty much addicted to doing things that are uh, outside of what I've done before. I think that the field of ornithology, or I pursue the field of ornithology, as if it were avian area studies. Uh, and uh, that's how I work. And sometimes it, it includes uh, physics, and sometimes it includes physiology or behavior or evolutionary biology or uh, sensory biology, uh, all these different areas. I think this is a modern way to look at what's usually kind of a dusty category. Dr. Richard Prum is an ornithologist at Yale University, a curator at the Peabody Museum of Natural History, and a recent recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Award, which makes him officially a genius. Thanks very much for your time, sir. Thank you. The tidal marshes of the lower Connecticut River that feed into Long Island Sound are popular spots for migrating birds to rest up, feed, or spend the night. Producer Lori Sanders went to one of these marshes to witness one of the most spectacular yet little-known events on the eastern flyway. It's about 6 o'clock, dinner time, as we head out into the marshes of the Connecticut River. We're in Old Lyme in Lord's Cove, about a half mile from Long Island Sound. It's low tide right now. And the exposed mudflats and extensive shallows are perfect feeding grounds for herons, sandpipers, and other shorebirds. The water is mirror still, and in the intense angled light of the late afternoon, the marsh plants look like they're glowing. So we just watch the edges here for leaf spinners and saw rails. 
That's Noble Proctor, one of Connecticut's best birders and all-around naturalists. His friend and fellow birdwatcher Hank Gallette is at the wheel. During the next half hour or so, the two spot lots of great birds. But as nice as those birds are, they're not the reason we're here. Gallette jokes, they're just the pre-show. We're here to take in the gathering of hundreds of thousands of tree swallows, an avian event of unrivaled proportion that Gallette is credited with discovering back in the mid-1970s. There's a few swallows on the water over there, I guess, but that's nothing. It's just a taste of what lies ahead. You really know when it's going to happen is when you look upriver, and as far as you can see on the horizon, there'll be black bands of swallows coming. It's, It's like a flood wave coming down. As the sun sinks lower on the horizon, the tree swallows begin to arrive. Where there were just a few a minute ago, now there are thousands coming from every direction. Now take a look at the binoculars. Just look into that and see the density. It's incredible. That's nothing, yeah. That's a warm-up group. <laughs> it looks like gnats. It's interesting because even after doing it for 15, 16 years, I get as excited <laughs> as coming out the first time. 15 or 16 years ago is when Proctor first came out with Gallette and their mutual friend, Roger Tory Peterson. Peterson has been called the John James Audubon of the 20th century, an artist, educator, and supreme naturalist. His field guide series is credited with rekindling America's interest in natural history. To have Roger Peterson, who has seen half a million flamingos on a lake at one time, to say this is one of the greatest ornithological phenomenon he's ever seen says an awful lot about what we're getting a chance to look at. Proctor and Gallette remember that outing vividly. Everything worked, the weather, the swallows. Peterson would later write in Birdwatcher's Digest that in his entire lifetime of birding, he'd never witnessed a spectacle more dramatic than the twisting tornadoes of tree swallows plunging down into the marsh from the sky after sundown. And he'd never known about it, even though he lived only a few miles away for 40 years. Gallette cuts the engine. We've arrived at his favorite viewing spot. In front of us is a low island covered with Phragmites. These tall reeds can grow 12 feet in a single season and form dense stands that, for us, are virtually impenetrable. And in the lower Connecticut River, this is the largest and densest stand of Phragmites, and it's where the tree swallows prefer to roost. By roosting here together, the birds gain some protection. Proctor says it's basically a numbers game. The more birds in the roost, the less likely it is that you'll be the one that gets picked off by a cooper's hawk or peregrine falcon. Now, as the sunset peaks, so do the swallows. They fill the sky from the horizon line to the clouds. Proctor estimates there are more than 100,000 tonight. By mid-October, the number will swell to more than 500,000. We're starting to spin a little. As the colors of the sunset fade, the swallows have formed a tighter and tighter mass over the marsh. Their flight has become more organized, whirling in mass. And then, all of a sudden, responding to some unknown cue, they start diving down into the marsh. Oh, they go. They just dropped out. The upper group is dropping out right now. Watch them dropping down. Just go straight over the Phragmites down low. But here comes another big group in. We watch without speaking as this swirling mass of birds descends into the marsh before us. It's not gentle gliding. They're plummeting into the reeds. And in five minutes, it's over. The sky is empty of swallows, and all 100,000 or so are in the Phragmites. Proctor says whenever he watches the descent, he always wishes he could have a different vantage point. What I would really like to see 
is I would love to be at the bottom of the vortex and see where that many go. Because the bottom of the vortex is probably just 100 feet across, if that. There are still so many questions about this phenomenon. What initiates their descent? How do the swallows know to come here? Do they come back night after night? And where are they coming from? Based on the fact that they can fly 25 miles an hour, Proctor guesses these birds are coming not just from other parts of Connecticut, but also Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and definitely flying across the sound from Long Island. So what we saw tonight is stunning, but five times that is going to appear, or even more, eight times that, so that it will be a perfect jet black V out against that sunset. And Proctor says, until you've seen that, you want to keep coming back. And even after you've seen it, you'll want to see it again. For Living on Earth, I'm Laurie Sanders in Old Lyme, Connecticut. next Living on Earth, fishermen feeling the squeeze and the push for more offshore wind energy. There's going to be winners and losers in the process. Um, I think it's a matter of sizing the industry so that we can have a sustainable fishery and a sustainable industry to harvest those fish. Managing our crowded coast next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week on the streets of Bangkok. Global climate talks are underway at the United Nations building in Thailand's capital. That's not what's on the minds of these residents in the neighborhood Sartorn. Their eyes are on a rattan ball, which they kick and headbutt over a net in the fast-paced Thai game called Sipak Takraw. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj was on the sidelines with her microphone. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Annie Glosser, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreese Kandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Parekh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.